This is an ABC podcast. When you embrace what women can do, appreciate what women can also contribute and take them as partners in development, I think we won't go wrong. There is no lopa industry because it's considered traditionally a woman's place to go and harvest those things. But the reality is if you go to every market in Samoa, you'll find a ula lopa, you know, like a lopa necklace. So it's out there and it's supporting businesses and it's supporting the economy. How can we as farmers earn a better living? Because as raw producers of cash crops or even everyday kitchen food, we don't earn much. You know, we should change things a little bit for ourselves. Farming is the backbone of our national economies throughout the Pacific. It brings sustenance, income, and it plays an important role in our international trade relationships. While so many women work the land, there are very few of us at the top, calling the shots in agriculture. But attitudes are beginning to change, and as female-led companies prove their value at local markets, in supermarkets and abroad, male gatekeepers are beginning to take notice. I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk about the changing powers for women in agriculture. Nipuni produces more than 42,000 tons of coffee each year, and it's one of the nation's largest agricultural exports. For Selin Lomutopa, coffee is in her blood. She is president of the PNG Women in Coffee Association, and she comes from a long line of coffee producers. And family is the driving force when it comes to her work to elevate women in the industry. Coffee is known to be a male's crop. When it comes to farming, women own the livestock. They can raise and sell and make decisions on the income that's earned for that. And also the vegetable farming side of it, gardening, fresh produce and other things. But when it comes to coffee, men think that that's something that women should not talk about. That has been a big challenge for us for quite a while, but it's gradually changing over time. It's just mindset change. And when we had access to training, mindset training, gender trainings from our partners, family business management, and all these little things, how men and women can sit together, plan together, budget and plan, and make decisions on how money is spent. Things are changing for us. We have role model farmers like women who are already doing extension work. They have the knowledge to do other things that men can do on the farm, like pruning, uh, desaccharying, managing uh, their own coffee plots and helping others to do the right thing. So we maintain the quality at the farm level and mobilize coffee, good coffee, quality coffee to market as small lots to interested buyers overseas. Mm. You started working with other women growers. What motivated you to do this? The passion for me to do this thing, it's all about putting a smile, bringing about change, helping people to realize their dreams and aspirations, how they can improve to make better decisions to improve their livelihood when it comes to managing resources, working as husband and wives, planning together. But at the end of the day, it's improving the livelihood of a family unit. So it's, it's satisfaction, job satisfaction to me. When you put a smile on a, some other person, you help make them smile, make them realize, and they start doing things to help themselves. That's the most important thing. At the village setting, 
tell our listeners what women do in the whole production of coffee. Women do a lot of work when it comes to coffee. They weed the gardens. They carry the bags, cherry bags from wherever, down the gullies up the mountain distance. They carry the heavy load of the cherry beans to where it's going to be pulped. And after it's been pulped, where, where women again carry the beans to the river, where there's a flowing water creek somewhere to wash it, wash it clean, and carry the beans up again, spread it on the canvas, or on the beds, dry it out there, keep on, you know, fighting the heat of the sun to turn it around again, turn it around until it's dried. They carry the bags in, come out dry the next day, carry it out, dry it again. Until it's dry, they pack it neatly and pack it up, store it up in a good place for it for market. So that's intensive labor involved in doing coffee business. Wow. But before they didn't have the decision making to decide on the money that comes in from it, but now this is changing, is that right? Or what have you observed? It is changing at a very slow pace. It's about a 15% of homes, especially when it comes to family units, they've come to realize that it is important that the family unit, the husband and wife needs to sit together, all have contributed the workload and have worked very hard. And at the end of the day, the women needs to also be in the decision-making part so that she is satisfied the input of time, labor, and effort has been realized by the husband. So collectively, they make decisions, but not for every home. The mentality, the customary thing is deeply rooted. So it will take a while for all these things to come, come about. Slowly, but gradually, and you're doing a great job in, right, that, yeah. in that space. Yes. Yeah. What difference has gaining work and skills in agriculture made for these women and their families? women being meaningfully participating in this is important because we have most of the, at least 70%, 90% of the population here, our livelihood depends on subsistence farming, but women are thinking differently now. From the farms, they are already into doing coffee buying now, and also they are also into roasting coffee and trying to put coffee, saving coffee, getting to promote the industry in terms of grow and promoting local consumption, our good coffee. So these are some things women are venturing in, but slowly. But I believe that over a long time, then we'll, we'll get some good things happening for women in this country. Let's talk about your business. How is it going now? Okay, this is good. Uh, we have our farm, a family farm. And also, I have also ventured into doing a little roasting for local consumption, roasting and packing. There's an, a lot more women also venturing into this. Others are doing coffee shop. That's why we came up with this PNG Women in Coffee, is to get our women to meaningfully engage and benefit out of what they have worked hard for. So I think the organization itself, we are pushing hard also to create a women-friendly kind of an environment where we can influence people at the top to see they can also assist in whatever they can to create a conducive environment for women legislatively and regulatively so that they can make women find their rightful place in that industry. Right now, we don't we have women on the boards as well, and we've done a lot of advocacy on that. But in my space as, as a small coffee SME, 
I have realized that though we have challenges, we can make a difference. We've talked a lot about the benefits to women. How does the PNG coffee industry benefit from having women as well as men work together to grow it? Women can make a difference when taken on board as partners in development when it comes to the farming aspect, to the quality control aspect, post-harvesting processing and mobilizing resources. I believe good things are coming our way, but we just need people to realize that women are also important. When you embrace what women can do, appreciate what women can also contribute and take them as partners in development, I think we won't go wrong. Selin Lomutopo founded Ginipa Ground Coffee on a 30-hectare plantation, and she leads the PNG Women in Coffee Association. You're listening to Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia. Mele Mawala is a grower and entrepreneur producing cocoa Samoa alongside her father. She's noticed that while women play an active and vital role in Samoa's agricultural industry, they are not held in the same regard as male farmers. Agriculture has long time been the backbone of all of the Pacific's economies. It's not only um, livelihood, but it's how we survive, how we feed our families and our friends, how we center our culture. So Agriculture is very much a part of all of that. But as an industry, it's something that is key for women to be able to access livelihoods as well. How did you become involved in agriculture in the first place? Oh, goodness. I feel like, you know, if you live in the islands, you inherit it. So it's not even a choice. (laughs) At some point in time, you will be having your hands in the soil, irrespective of whether that was your intention. But my father is a soil scientist by training, and his dream was always to have a a cocoa plantation to grow his own cocoa. So even when we were living overseas, you know, he would always look out the window, even if it was snowing, (laughs) and say, someday we'll have our own cocoa plantation. So when he moved back about 20 years ago or so, he started that dream. And then when I moved back, I helped him. And from that, we've really been able to establish not only our company. I, it feels crazy to say company when, when we're talking about what we grow, but that is it. It's a business. And from that, really learned what our communities need, where the issues are and and how we really need to help the women and youth of our communities. You are one of the founding members of SWAG, Someone Women Association of Growers. Tell me how that came up. Yeah, there really wasn't a space to acknowledge women the way that they need to. Part of that is, you know, when you go to the markets, 80% of those vendors are women, but nobody thinks of them as entrepreneurs or business owners, but that's what they are. They're selling product and they're earning income and it's supporting them and their families. And so it happened to us. We would see all these workshops where we'd see all these men getting training or getting equipment. And we always wondered where were the women? So we created our own organization so that we could centralize our efforts and, you know, do resource mobilization and also create projects where we could share the knowledge that we had with the women in our community and make them feel that they had every reason to be there. A few of your members are men, but 90% are women and It's women who carry out the training, including in villages. What differences does that make? 
part of it is that they use everyday language. They are speaking from a perspective of not only knowledge, but the purpose. Why are you doing this? And it's oftentimes very practical. We do courses where we do value adding, you know. So if you have a uh, hundred um, mangoes, if it's mango season, everybody's selling them. But if you can turn it into a chutney or a jam, then you can not only increase your profit margin, but you can be selling it when it's not mango season. But of course, you say to yourself, why are you selling it? When do you need this money most? And, you know, you're thinking about when school fees are due, when contributions to family commitments are, are expected. And of course, women are always thinking that way because they're kind of making sure that the resources available to cover everybody and still get food on the table. So that's where we've seen that pragmatic approach to why the skills that you're learning make a difference. A significant part of the informal sector is foraging, traditionally carried out by women. Why is this so important to include when we talk about agriculture and farming? For many times, the attitude is that foraging doesn't even count, you know, as an activity. I've yet to read a agriculture report that includes foraging as part of that. But of course, women forage for a variety of different things, depending on the country. And I mean, in Samoa, we have something called lopa, which is a, a little red nut or seed that tastes like peanut. And you can make it into jewelry and you can also roast it and eat it. But there is no lopa industry because it's considered traditionally a woman's place to go and harvest those things. But the reality is if you go to every market in Samoa, you'll find a ula lopa, you know, like a lopa necklace. So it's out there and it's supporting businesses and it's supporting the economy. How is the role of women in agriculture and growing change? Well, you know, I have to congratulate our Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries because they've done a great job in terms of acknowledging women. But the reality is 80% of our income is informal. And of that 80% of informal income, the majority of the people who are making it are women. A huge part of agricultural practice relies on women contributing as well. But many times if you ask a, a woman, oh, are you a farmer? And she'll say, oh, no, my husband's a farmer. But then when you talk to her about what does she do in terms of growing things around the house, she's doing farming. So that's sort of why we switched to the term growing, because then there was no expectation, but there was an acknowledgement that the growing part was the important thing to focus on. Does that mean that men are starting to see the role of women differently as well? I think what's changing is that our government and our ministries and NGOs are making more space for women. Whether or not those inherited notions of who was to be invited to the workshop came from outside forces or whether it's just because we're changing the way we talk about who is growing things as opposed to who is the farmer means that those notions are changing. But even with swag, like I said, you know, 10% of our membership is male. When they come to the workshop, they don't see women and men as separate. They just see us all as people who want to learn together and want to grow together. That's great. How big a leap is it for women to go from growers to exporters and being in control of the whole financial setup? Informally, women have been making kokosamoa and sending it to relatives around the world for as long as that's been possible. So if you ask any Samoan overseas, how can I get some kokosamoa? They'll immediately call their mom, their auntie, their sister in Samoa and say, oh, we need this. Can you send it to us? So I think that informal process of export 
as you could call it in, in that sense, has been happening for a long time. But really what we're trying to do now is remind women that, yes, you're actually business owners. You're exporting just like any of the big fancy companies do. So we're trying to help them formalize as well so that they get the type of access to financing that sometimes is not allowed to the informal sector. You know, if you turn up and say, well, I grow this and I send it to my cousins, there'll be a lot of financial institutions that won't consider that a business. We're just trying to create a space so that we can help women navigate transitioning from informal to formal, but not feeling lost in the process or alienated, whether it's because the forms to fill out are too complicated or they step into a bank and they don't think that they're meant to be there. So we just want to hold hands a little bit to guarantee that everybody can reach the potential they'd like to. Where the space is that men are not letting women in. It has to do more with like the traditional notions of who's supposed to do what. Part of this is inherited from our cultural practice and part of it is substantiated by who's choosing who gets to come to those workshops or access those types of loans. But I think where we see resistance is really just when it comes to when they think it's a competition, right? If a woman is allowed in, then that means a man is denied that. So we're saying even though we're a women's organization, of course, men are allowed to join. And I think that's really when you become more holistic in not only the way you address things, but the way you help people too. One of the barriers you've highlighted is applying for microfinance. What prevents women from using microloans to get a foothold in the industry? I think this is really problematic for women in rural areas because a lot of these microfinancing, they either expect you to have collateral, either a house, a home, a bank account, show proof that you have a job, which a lot of people don't have, even in urban areas. And then, of course, when you go to fill out those forms, they're very complicated. They use a lot of technical words and there's nobody there to assist you. It's been one of the biggest challenges we've found, even like through SWAG, we've had a lot of members say, oh, we just want training on on how to like fill out these forms and how to work with financial institutions to find other alternatives to the predicated collateral that's often required. So it really is about changing attitudes as to who is the client, who is the entrepreneur, the business owner, and then making sure that those pathways exist for them, not just for those who have the income or the capacity to do so. How do you change those attitudes? What tangible things need to be done or to happen to help positive change? Well, I mean, it means being vocal, right? It means you have to get out there and, and talk about the issues honestly and then highlight where the problems are, but also provide solutions. So whether it's swag or you as an individual grower or farmer, it's really important to be able to say this is what people are having issues with. And these are the ways that we collectively need to solve it. I think that's that's where it takes a bit of bravery as an individual and as organizations, because rather than pitting yourself against government or other formal institutions, it's really about saying, how can we work hand in hand so that the entire population has those opportunities? And when the rural communities, when farmers thrive, when growers thrive, the nation thrives. Mele Mawala runs Coco Money with her father, and she helps set up Swag, Someone Women in Agriculture. Have you ever tasted garlic cake or a fresh loaf of garlic bread? The garlic nut is a bit like an almond, 
and it's native to parts of Papua New Guinea. It has taken Dorothy Luana and her daughter decades to grow their garlic nut business, but their efforts have paid off. They have expanded from their local East New Britain community to the supermarkets of Port Moresby and beyond. When I started garlic nut farming, it was largely because I liked the nuts. I was also thinking, how do we make the garlic nut a special thing? Because PNG has a lot of high-value raw products, but we as farmers don't really get much out of it. And I was thinking, how can we get the best price for the least effort? Huh? For the same size block holding, how can we as farmers earn a better living? Because as raw producers of cash crops or even everyday kitchen food, we don't earn much. Farmers generally reach as far as owning land and owning the cash crops, but most of us are cash poor. We sell depending on what the international market says we should pay for our produce. And for me, you know, that didn't really sit well. I, you know, we should change things a little bit for ourselves. A lot of work has gone into this. How did you expand? It took about 15 years for the first lot of trees that I planted on my farm to to mature. And when they were matured, I didn't really know what I was going to do with all the nuts that were coming from the trees. And I didn't really understand myself how more I could do to the nuts beyond cracking it open and selling it in the open market. So after talking to a few people, even at the National Agriculture Research Institute, no one really was ready to buy volume, raw products. So I thought to myself that, okay, look, I'll just put everything into a container and send it to Port Mosby, and I'll see if I can sell it on the streets in Mosby. We tried selling the nut in different forms, in shell or baked. And initially, a lot of people were very curious, but no one was really buying when I saw that it needed a lot of convincing for people in Port Mosby to buy the garlic, I put a little bit more effort into some pamphlets to explain to people where the nut comes from and what potentially are some of the benefits for eating the nut. It was quite a long journey. After 15 years of growing the nut, it took us literally four years of street sales it's taken us about eight more years to get the nut at a standard and at a quality that we can now sell to the supermarkets. I'm just curious, on average, how much do you make from your garlic nuts in a month? It depends on the orders. Some orders, like if I get two orders, I could make 10,000. That's in PNG Kina. Uh, sometimes 5,000, sometimes more. It just depends on the shop, which shop, like during Christmas and New Year, I had an order for 20000 I wow. now have an order for 10000 That's amazing. And we have gone from selling five kina packets on the street and con trying to convince people that, yeah, you buy this little packet here. So now we don't need to do that. We keep up with our promotions, but we are struggling to supply our major bias. That's amazing. What are the biggest challenges as a woman yourself at the front of an export business? I think one of the big issues for me is that nobody really takes me seriously. They see what I do, but they say, like in Pigeon, uh, 
work blood mama it's kind of like as a society we kind of belittle women's effort to move into the business sector mm. we don't take them seriously as potential business women and we downplay their efforts even if they are seemingly achieving something and we don't congratulate them or we don't encourage them to do better so for me i felt that it was just a little bit easier because i had a bit more education than the average female farmer mm. but because of what i see i try my best to share any information that i know that is coming into the public realm just to make sure that other women that i am aware of in my network are also aware of the same information with the information sharing yes. that you do and your connection and collaborating with women in your community what impact does that have for those women growers that you work with i think most of them for the beginning they see what i'm doing and they know that okay she's definitely selling her gallop somewhere so let's bring our gallop to her and she'll buy it having the women on my side who can say that oh okay let me support him dorothy because emsa look look lo you me so all gallop lo you me when she comes to buy it or send her boys to buy the gallop by you me salim lo em yeah what i have also been doing is also coaching and training and mentoring them on how to make cakes and cookies so they can do their own local sales on the roadside or to the schools or go to the market what opportunities are there for women to have more control in agriculture if it's a government leased land and you purchase the land through the government that for me is the best way forward for women because customary land is more difficult i believe for women to control i made sure that my farm has my name on it as far as the title is concerned because you need that it empowers you to be able to go to the bank it empowers you to talk to a partner it empowers you to negotiate and discuss because you own that piece of land if you don't own the piece of land then you as a woman need to understand where you sit in the community and how you impact on the resources that are for communal benefits you have a fascinating story you have a master's degree you've worked in corporate sector then development agencies yeah. and you given all that up just to start selling food on the streets and you are mocked made fun of and you're finally doing what you're doing and what you love what are your biggest rewards being a woman in agriculture i i think i've found the place i want to be because maybe 80% of our people survive on agriculture and on feeding themselves ah when i was in the corporate world and even working for some of the development agencies you know i was way off looking at policy level stuff maybe project planning and management that type of thing to be able to really appreciate where and how whether in government or in the corporate sector how we were really impacting on the lives of people i couldn't really see it but where i am now is a journey that i chose for myself i'm so glad that i'm in a position now where i can help to advocate on behalf of other farmers and women that we are already millionaires the fact that we own land which country can you go to where 
the average Joe bloke on the street can say that I own 50 hectares of land. Me, I own that mountain over there. I own this river going up up to that, that place there. There is no place in the world except PNG and maybe one or two other countries where the average person on the street wearing a torn T-shirt can point to vast land tracks and says, my family owns this. I, don't you think it's a blessing for us? Yes, it is. So we need to really value this. We don't want people coming into the country who see the opportunity and because they have more resources, they offer you just a little to be able to access your resource. So one of the things that I do is I continue to to try as much as possible to advocate, particularly on land management, understanding the value that your land has for you and your family, and also raising awareness with those who can listen to me, like government or private sector, that if you want to access the resources of this landowner, it has to be a win-win situation. Otherwise, don't develop the place. That's Galib Nut Grower, Dorothy Luana. Thanks to all my guests today, Dorothy Mele Mawala and Selin Lomutopa. Next time you're in a marketplace, think about who might have grown the beans or the nuts or vegetables you are buying. Did a woman grow them, harvest them, package them, export them? Women are integral to agriculture in the Pacific, and it's been wonderful to recognize their role today. If you've missed an episode of the show, catch up on our podcast. You can listen on the ABC Pacific website or on your favorite podcast app. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, what do you know about your ancestral land and how does that knowledge shape you? I constantly think about Barnaba and it's like my whole being is so well grounded in that rock in the middle of the Pacific that it doesn't matter where I am. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is presented and produced by me, Hilda Wayne. Our supervising producer is Kim Lester. Executive producer is Inga Stunsner. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production. I'm Tasol Nabungimu next time.